Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. Great afternoon. You are in the fast lane of Sarah Jane. I am so glad that you are joining us today. To stick with my theme of talking to people who live better, do better, and encourage others to do the same, today I'm talking with Laura Cook-Bolt. Laura is a co-author of a book that she wrote with her son, Tom. The book is called Unraveled. I really like the book. And it was very interesting to read the book uh, because you got the mom's side of the story and the son's side of the story as well. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Laura. Welcome, Laura Cookbolt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's, uh, It's great being with you today. Thank you. And so I literally stumbled across your book. And I was drawn to it right away because Laura is the mother of all boys. She has four boys, correct? Correct. And I only have three, so she's one-upping on me. But I I don't know. I have a thing for boy moms because I think that we all probably have a common bond since we have all seen a lot in our day with uh, boys. But so I wanted... I wanted to talk to Laura because I thought this was interesting. This this book is not like a book I've read before because she is writing part of it and her son is writing part of it. And it's talking about addiction and overcoming addiction. And this is a huge problem in the United States and likely worldwide. So I think this is really great that you guys came out and spoke so raw about this because it, it couldn't have been easy. There had to be a lot of emotions tied to what you were talking about. So I want to start with how did you decide to write a book with your son? About three years ago, Tommy asked if I wanted to write a book with him. At that point, I think he was about five years sober and I was nine years sober. And I said, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I I didn't really think that we would actually make motions to move forward. I, I tossed the idea around and with a few months of thought, we dove right into it. Um, we I agreed to it. We have seen what they call tandem narratives prior to our writing our book. And I did not want to, to follow that exact format. I wanted to see perhaps if maybe it could be more from uh, Tommy's perspective with, um, with me as a supporting supporting uh, character in the book, sort of commenting on uh, my experience being his mother through the process, as well as reflecting on my own sobriety to some degree. And uh, so we, we started writing, I think from conception to completion, it did take a little over three years. So you had been sober for how many years before your son went through this? I was sober for Oh, let's see. Twelve, eight. I have to do the math. This is this is this is difficult for me. I was sober for eight years. Okay. No, that's not right. I was sober for four years um, when he got sober, and uh, although that's 
a little bit in the beginning phases of sobriety, relatively speaking. I was very committed to my program. So I felt that I had evolved to a point where I could really be there for Tommy and, and his incredible need at that point. So let's talk about your journey through this because you're a mom of four and you went through treatment while you still had young children, correct? I actually didn't go through treatment. So the, I'll be brief about the beginning of my story. I had fears about two years prior to my getting sober. I expressed those fears with a very good friend of mine who was in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as well as with my husband. But there was something about it where I would express the fears, but I didn't really want to get sober. I really wanted to drink, especially at five or six in the afternoon when everybody was home from school and things were crazy and you had to get dinner ready and everybody had to go their different directions for sports. And then my husband came home and we put a big stack of mail on the counter and I thought, ah! and uh, it, I'm not blaming it on anyone. It, it, it's mine to own alone. But I think probably about the time that my youngest son out of the four was two years old, I really kicked into my, my full blown alcoholism. From that point on, um, after, after the two years prior to when I had had these discussions, I had a car accident. And the car accident occurred on Halloween night. I was driving home from a party. My husband had driven my youngest son to the party and driven him home. So I had our other car alone. And I'd had too much to drink. And I had a pretty bad accident. And by that, I mean the airbags deployed. I remember specifically this huge airbag covering my face and and I was shaking my head trying to figure out what in the hell just happened. And OnStar came on and said, Mr. Bolt, can we help you? And I said, God, who is that? (laughs) And I said, no, you can't help me. I don't want a police officer to come and give me a breathalyzer. I mean, this is what I was thinking. And um, I said, I assure you, I am absolutely fine. I have no idea how I got that car home, but I did. The next day, I woke up to a phone call at about six o'clock in the morning. And it was my son, my third son, calling to see if I could pick him up from a friend's house. He didn't feel well. And I walked outside and saw this total car. And I went, oh, my God, who in the hell took my car for a joyride? (laughs) So I had a full-blown blackout. And I think at that point, I really had an epiphany. I, I, I really thought, God, if I don't do this now, when am I going to get sober? I could have killed somebody. And for a while there, I thought, gosh, did I kill somebody? I don't remember where I crashed. Yeah. And it was really, 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 really scary. And from that point on, I have not had a drink. Having grown up in an alcoholic family and my mother was in the program, I knew that there was this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew that that was something I could probably visit. And as I stated uh, early on in the first few days, I said, I'm going to try that AA thing, but it's not going to be my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really has become the source of my strength. And I feel very dedicated and committed to that program on a daily basis. I have to. My life depends on it. But the moment of that epiphany was, it was unbelievable. I, I'm just literally almost on my knees having a silent moment thinking, I hear you. 
I hear that I can never pick up a drink again as long as I live. I don't drink like normal people. Mm-hmm. And the the thing is when you're when you're going through phases of drinking and you've grown up in an alcoholic family, you always say, I will never be that mother. I will never be like my mother and drink. As if we have some sort of control over the disease. So my mother led the way and with grace and I, and I caught out of the program. I kind of, I kind of regret the fact that I didn't go to rehab because everybody has great rehab stories. I don't happen to be one of those people. (laughs) Well, and since you were a busy mom, it's not that you were out at the bar and it's not that you were waking up in the morning and having mimosas and drinking all day. Like you said, you would wait until five o'clock or six o'clock in the evening. How common do you think that that really is that people maybe don't think that they have a problem because they don't drink all day. They don't start till the evening. Well, I think it's exceedingly common. And I think that people want to go through that denial process by thinking that they're a functional alcoholic or they're a functional drinker, therefore not an alcoholic. Um, For example, I used to run every morning. I'd run and wear off brain fog from the night before. So clearly I was not an alcoholic. But I think it's, it's very common. And I think if people continue on that path, it's only a question of time, maybe months, maybe years, where they devolve into day drinking and further deepening their addictions. Did you ever have withdrawals? Like when it was five or six at night, were you, it was time for a drink? Like, did you know that it was time for a drink at that point? Um, I think that it, because alcoholism is such an obsession of the mind, I think it, to me, it just seemed more like, first of all, it was a habit. Uh, Second of all, it was an obsession of the mind. And I really did feel like I needed to relax, but I didn't have any kind of symptoms in terms of DTs, shakes, tremors, having an upset stomach or anything like that, I, I hadn't gotten to that point. However, I mean, to, to backtrack before being a mom in sobriety and being an active alcoholic as a mother, in my youth, in college, things like that, I, I drank a lot. I did a lot of drugs. And I think when I got married and as I progressed into getting a little bit older, for some reason, I didn't have as much interest in, in getting blasted and getting high. And it seemed to be dormant. I'm not saying that uh, I didn't have other isms, but I think it really wasn't until my youngest son was about two where I really ended up being a full-blown alcoholic, meaning a danger to myself, a danger to others, and creating a little bit of wreckage. I like to steal vehicles. And it's kind of weird. It's really random. When I think I had had three kids at this point, I went out with a bunch of women in Vail, Colorado, and we decided it'd be a good time to hijack a snowcat and go groom the slopes. <laughs> I mean, we did the craziest stuff, the craziest stuff. I'd steal golf carts, cars. I just thought it was really funny. And my emotional maturity was probably that of my 13-year-old son. <laughs> so I'm not your garden variety alcoholic here. No, and you talk in the book about when you went out for supper one night and you ended up on the table and you were and you're an athletic person and you were athletic at that time as well and you were weren't you doing trying to do pull-ups on a rafter? Oh, we did. We jumped up on a couple of us jumped up on a rafter and swung away. I was laughing so hard that I fell. 
we both, there were two of us, and we both landed on a table, it cracked in half, and, and down we went to the floor. And of course, you know, other people in the restaurant were appalled. I thought it was hilarious. And here I am, a mother at that point of three boys. Mm-hmm. And this is okay? Mm-hmm. I thought it was okay. So did you have to pay for that table? I did not. And, and strangely enough, we didn't get kicked out of the restaurant. I mean, back in the, in the early 90s, especially in the 80s, in the 70s, that seemed to be normal behavior. Uh, maybe I thought it was normal because I was always part of it. But a lot of things got excused. Like, they don't get excused today, which is a good thing. So was your husband a drinker or no? He is a drinker, but very, very conservative and mild drinker. He doesn't drink at home. When I was drinking, I had encouraged him to have some wine with me. But no, he's he grew up in a family of very knowledgeable siblings because his father started a rehab facility in St. Louis And that was based on, he was a physician, and that was based on my father-in-law's friendship with a man who could not stay sober. So he and a priest and another doctor decided to start a rehab center in St. Louis through Mercy Hospital. And my husband, Tom, grew up understanding the the language of addiction, not living through it. But Mm -hmm. he was a very compassionate guy through this whole thing. I don't know. He's just amazingly patient. That's amazing. That's wonderful. It, it is. It is. It's, uh, I'm not so sure that I could do the reverse. I don't know that I could be married to an active alcoholic and be the parent of an alcoholic and have a mother-in-law that was an alcoholic and live through all this, this drama and chaos and, and sickness. So I suppose it's better that I was the one that was the alcoholic. <laughs> right. And now, yeah. and, and now not. But when... when was that Halloween? Was that the last time you drank? Or was that just when you started oh, I had, you knew you had to start? I that was the last time I had a drink. So that was in 2000, 2008. And uh, it was on a Saturday. And um, Saturday morning is when I woke up and, and couldn't remember where I crashed the car. The following Monday, two days later, I uh, started the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I called a friend of mine who was in the program, the same one who I talked to about it prior to my getting sober, and she took me to a meeting, and I've been going ever since, which, believe me, is no small miracle. I mean, I believe if I can get sober, anybody can get sober. I think it's just one of those things, when you're ready, you're ready, and when you're so sick and tired of being sick and tired of the same old thing day in and day out, and the craziness and not getting different results with that same behavior, it's time to quit. And I, I think I had all the stars aligned in order to be successful with that. And of course, a great deal of support within my family and, and immediate friends. Do you have a lot of friends that went through the program or do you still, did you have to change your friends? Like did a lot of friends continue drinking or? Well, I thought, you know, when I, when I entered into AA and began my sober life, I thought I'd have to get like a, legal pad and write down who all my friends were and check off there. They're, I can't see them. I can't see them. I can't see them. And really it's just, it evolves naturally. I think that you have your drinking buddies and I think you have your very dear friends and your dear friends stick with you Yeah. and your drinking buddies just sort of go their own way because I became a lot less interesting to those people that, that were my drinking buddies. And there was a lot of compassion within my friend group. 
So um, it's, it is a very big lifestyle change. But as we say in the program, we're not a glum lot. I still have a lot of fun. I still do mm-hmm. things that border crazy. I just have a little bit more wisdom and a little bit more maturity. I like to think I've evolved mm-hmm. a little bit in the 12 years that I've been sober, which is what we get to work on when we're sober. And you it's, get to remember it all. You do. I would still love to know what I crashed into. I, uh, that night on Halloween, I called OnStar the next day and they gave me degrees of latitude and that was over my head. I couldn't figure out where that was. I tried to drive wherever that, that was that, that point and uh, I didn't see anything. So I, I really did have a, a moment of um, enormous gratitude that I hadn't killed anybody or myself. Well, how, how far away was it from that house to your house? They said it was only about, gosh, maybe uh, right around the corner. So they didn't give it to me in yards or feet or anything like that. They just give you the longitude and latitude of it. Okay. So it was fairly close, but I didn't see any damage uh, right around the corner. So I'm not, I, to this day, don't know what I hit. You know what's really frightening, though, when you are an alcoholic and you go in, I went to the emergency room the next day because I had a really large bump that sort of just came out of nowhere after I had taken a shower. You know, when you lean your head over after you wash your hair, put the towel around your head, all of a sudden I looked up and there was this huge lump on my forehead. And Tommy said to me, Mom, what did you just do to your head? And I said, well, I don't know. I looked in the mirror and he said, I'm calling an ambulance. So I went to the hospital and the doctor um, took a look at it. He said, I can tell you exactly what happened relative to your car accident. Those days they didn't have the side airbag. So when the airbag throws you back, then it kicks your your head into the side, the corner of the, the door and the actual windshield. And I just said, you know, and I can't remember a damn thing. And he said, well, you have a pretty bad head injury. You had the subdermal, the one that goes inside your head. And I said, no, I'm an alcoholic. That's why I forgot where I crashed. He said, well, I don't see any any signs of alcoholism. I think you just have a terrible uh, concussion and you're lucky to be alive. I just don't think that a lot of medical physicians at that point in time were ready to go along with the fact that when you make that declaration that you're an alcoholic, I don't think that they're truly ready to go along with you if they don't see the signs of a big belly or liver damage and blood work, which they didn't see. But that didn't deter me. That didn't stop me from staying on the course of getting well. So so was it difficult when you went through the program? Because there's a lot of family stuff when you go through that, right? Like you have to sit down with all your family members and discuss stuff. Was that difficult to sit and do that, especially with your children? Well, so not having gone to rehab, there was no family program. But when I when I got into AA, which I still go to, which I'm still active in, as much as we can be during COVID, unfortunately, it's all by Zoom. Um, I waited two weeks to make sure that I was going to be successful at not having a drink. I didn't want to, I've never promised my, my kids at that point or my husband that I would quit drinking. So I wanted to make sure I could do it for a few weeks. And when I told him, um, I sat down with all of them and, uh, my oldest one said, Oh mom, really? I mean, you're so much fun when you drink. And my second oldest son said, well, I'm good with that mom. And, My third son said, well, mom, 
if you're not drinking now, you're no longer an alcoholic. And I said, no, I will always be an alcoholic, but just not an active alcoholic. Mm. So it is a, there's a solution. There's just not a cure. Mm-hmm. So we have to remember that I cannot go out and drink like, um, like other people mm-hmm. and your crazy head in your mind sometimes wants to tell you, I'll go ahead, try it. You've been going, you've been sober for 12 years. Go ahead and pick up a drink. You could have a glass of wine. Well, I haven't wanted to, and I don't want to, because I truly am afraid of it. I'm afraid that I would never end up back in the program again. I just I don't want to, I don't want to toy with that concept whatsoever. And that's why I stay, stay with my program. Your husband had said he wasn't ready. Do you think that you had to be ready and he had to be ready at the same time for you to go through the program? Because like you said, he was instrumental in helping you. But at, at that one time he said, I'm not ready. So what, what was he waiting for? Well, he said at the time, he didn't think that he was ready to tell me that I needed help. It didn't matter to me what he thought or anybody else thought at that time. I was so damn afraid that I said, if I don't stop now, I might kill somebody. I can't remember if I killed somebody last night driving the car. I can't live like this anymore. I really can't live with the fear. I can't live with the shame. I don't want to be that parent. I don't want to be that wife. I don't want to be that friend. I don't want to be that person. And I think in retrospect, he was very, very relieved. Very relieved. Now, had he been ready... And I hadn't been ready. That's a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. Because then you get into all kinds of codependent behavior and that just backfires. Mm-hmm. And I suppose he knew that he really couldn't bring it up to you because of what his dad had done. So he'd been around in this situation. I think, I think deep down, I think he thought that it would be best for me to come to that realization on my own. He had had a conversation with me a few months prior and asked me, do you think that you can control the amount you drink? And I just broke down in tears because I knew the answer was no. But I still wasn't ready. Even when you look at your kids and you love your kids so much and you love your husband so much and you want to be the best possible mother, the best possible wife, the best possible friend in person, the disease is so manipulative and so powerful and so strong. I couldn't get sober, even though I knew I didn't want to be that person. And it took a pretty bad car accident to shake the fear of God into me and for me to then take action in getting healthy. So do you have a family within the program like that you check in with or that you are in contact with a lot? Absolutely. And it's so funny, when I went into the, the rooms of AA, I looked around, I thought, God, these people are so sick. I said, I don't belong in here. And your mind wants to tell you that, you know, you are just not like these people. They have problems. You don't have problems. You just drank too much. Well, it seems to me from what I've learned from studying and being certified as a server coach and a teaching of, of server coaching that we can talk ourselves out of believing that we have a problem all day long. The end result is that's part of the insanity of the whole thing. And it took me a long time to open up to people in the program. And now I have so many great friends. We take sober trips. We don't really even talk about the real act of sobriety so much as we just go, we travel to Colorado, we hike, we 
do all kinds of fun things together. And um, we're just, we're support for each other. And it is, it, it's better if you talk to somebody every day, especially now, like the, just the statistics of people that are drinking alone, you know, it's a disease of isolation, whether you're gregarious or not, it's a disease of isolation inside. And then you're, you're told you have to be inside. You may have to work from inside. And um, you're so cut off from your, from your family of sober, sober friends. You can't hug them. You can't be with them. You can't be, right now, it's funny, you can go into a bar and you can go to, go to a liquor store and buy anything you want and be around a bunch of people, but you can't go into, the, into whatever church basement you have your AA meeting. And mm-hmm. there are some right now that practice distancing outside where you can do that, but there's sort of a new spike in Missouri right now. So people are just committed to staying with Zoom calls. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to your question. You asked me about the conversation with the kids. Through the process of AA, there's something called the 12 Steps. And in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and they're in order for a reason, you work through the accountability of being an alcoholic, the awareness that everybody else isn't to blame, and then the awareness of who you've harmed. And then after you've done that work, you get to step nine, and that's where you make amends. So it was several months into it where I sat down with each one of my kids individually and made amends. And then, because they were so young, about a year or two later, I wrote them all letters. And they said, mom, we already had this conversation. So you, you know, we don't want to keep apologizing to people over and over again for the same behavior. What's important is to take accountability for what I had done, how I had, had hurt them, and then become a living amends, a living and breathing amends mm-hmm. to prove to them that, that this is uh, indeed a better way of life and and I owe them that. I owe myself that. Mm-hmm. Were you concerned about any of your other children? Um, well, I haven't been concerned with three of my children. However, I was very concerned about Tommy. He's mm-hmm. very much like me in sense of humor and, and all kinds of mannerisms. And I think he was the lucky one who got the gene. And um, I could sort of identify the alcoholic behavior in him pretty young. And then after I was sober for a few years, he certainly did start to get more and more involved in to some pretty heavy drug use. So that was very, very, very scary for me. And I, as it would be for any parent. I mean, it's like a parent's worst nightmare, aside from losing your child, which is the worst thing I could possibly imagine. It's having a child with an an addiction, a serious addiction problem. Mm -hmm. It's deadly. It's fatal. Mm -hmm. It's scary. He's lucky to be alive. He, I was just going to say that after reading the book, he had a few, uh, a few major scares, but the other, your other sons watching him and watching you go through what you did, they have had no interest in any of that. I think that they, not only do they not have interest, I think that, um, that they're not genetically predisposed because mm-hmm. even if they, they declare that they have no interest as I did when I was younger, I'm not going to be my mother. I'm not going to be that alcoholic. They could make that decision. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go through what Tommy went through. I'm not, and they did make that decision, but the proof is in the years that follow 
how they conduct themselves, how alcohol affects them. And I don't, I don't see it in any of them. I have two that are in the military. And of course, there's plenty of opportunity for, for drinking at certain times, but I don't see it in them. And then my, my middle son, who's actually my, well, one of my middle children, he just always was, he always lived in the middle of the boat. He had a really good sensibility about him. He just isn't one of those types of people that does anything too extreme other than ski and mountain climb. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's his addiction. Mm-hmm. And which is a good addiction to have, I think. When you were going through rehab, is that about the same time Tommy was in junior high? So I didn't really, unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to go through rehab. But when I quit or drinking. Or the program. I apologize. Right, right, right. No, no, that's okay. I'm just, I guess, just semantics. Yep. Tommy was 16 years old when I got sober. Okay. So that's when he really started um, smoking some pot. And it was a few years later when he got into the heavier, heavier drugs. So you were, I think this is safe to say, the school system absolutely failed you. That school that he went to, oh. he, they failed you and they failed your son miserably. When I'm reading that, I had to go back and read it again because I thought, really, this is happening and no one is doing anything about it. And it was a, at a religious school. Like, I don't, <laughs> oh, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Carrie, go ahead. I, I, I was just absolutely shocked by it because... As a parent, you had to be absolutely mortified, but at the same time, you trust these people to teach your child and take care of them, and they completely drop the ball. They, they not only did they drop the ball, they were, oh gosh, it was a very, very difficult situation. Maybe some people think that I was somewhat of a helicopter parent, but we have to understand as moms in particular, that there is a fine line between being a good mother and being a codependent. And when your kids are young, you have to step in and you have to help them. That's what we get to do as parents. And that's okay. That situation was horrific. It was dangerous. It was frustrating. He went to school there for a year and a half. We took him out in the the first semester, the end of the first semester of his second year. And that was back in the, let's see exactly when was that, around 2002, 2003, something like that. He, you know, this particular school are a group of Marianists and their excuse was, as Marianists, we do not turn people away. But at the same time, they don't advocate for the, the person that's being abused. He had a, a homeroom teacher who I tried emailing, and she would email me back within 30 seconds without any thought whatsoever about what I had written her. And she said, all I see is a boy needing attention and acting out. Well, so maybe that's true. Maybe he acted out. Maybe he was a class clown. Maybe he was trying to make friends. But that doesn't make up for the lack of support that he had in terms of the extreme bullying. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of Catholic schools, boys Catholic schools, have that uh, propensity. Uh, and today you would think things would be better, but I understand the schools in the same sort of predicament. Mm-hmm. You know, girls can be pre- pretty damn mean to each other, too. Yeah. 
But uh, I don't ever remember kicking anybody or, Mm-mm. you know, smashing food in their face or becoming particularly violent. And then the other thing is just, just you know, calling Tommy gay and faggot and writing it on his locker. He was friends with the art teacher. He's a very creative guy. And, you know, he wasn't on the football team. And although he had many other talents, to me, that's really disgusting behavior. And I mm-hmm. think that a lot of that is learned at home, unfortunately. I was just going to say that it makes me wonder what kind of parents you have to think that is anywhere near acceptable. Unacceptable parents. <laughs> Big time. Yes, yes. Did you know any of these parents? I did. And out of the four parents that I contacted, and I tried contacting them a couple of times through email, thinking that would be a really diplomatic approach, I had one response from somebody who was apologetic and had her son write an apology note and send Tommy flowers. Lovely thought. (laughs) Lovely thought. But the behavior never changed. no, well, no, he did not. And then we took Tommy out of the school. But he has since, this particular young man has since apologized to Tommy many years later as an adult. And, and they're good. The other three, two of them are in prison. And one of them, I have no idea what happened to him. Wow. But when Tommy left, they just continued, continued on. It was, a, it was a very serious situation. And imagine I was feeling helpless as the mother trying to help him and Thomas feeling helpless, how helpless he must have felt every day walking into that school. Yeah. Every day. Do you think that propelled him into addiction? I do. You do. And I think that my giving a Valium because he was having anxiety about going back to school after Christmas break and his heart was literally pounding through his chest. He was beside himself and having a pretty serious anxiety attack about going back to school. So he got in a bathtub. I said, why don't you try to relax? And nothing could calm him down. And well, back in those days, we all had Xanax, Valium, you name it. Well, of course, in the program now, and I wasn't sober then, you would never consider giving your child a Xanax or, or a Valium. But I gave him a Valium. And as it says in the book, I'm not sure if I gave it for him or for me. Mm-hmm. But it helped, and I think that's something he's always reflected on. Wow, I've, I've got this magic pill, mm-hmm. and it's a get-out-of-hell-free pass. I do believe that it's familial, it's a family disease, but I don't think that that helped matters any. And that's trauma. Being abused like that by your own peers is trauma. Yes, that is. And, and it's, I want people to, I want people to read the book, first of all, but I think it's important to say that you are a good family. You are a stable family. It is not that you guys are um, living below your means and struggling. And, you know, this can happen to absolutely anyone. You are a well-respected family and your child was bullied. Any of our children can be bullied. And when you have this in your genes, this can happen to anyone. It's just not I, I don't know. And there's not a good way to say it, but you know, some people you see at the bar all the time, right? That's, that wasn't you. You're active. You were an active mom. You're an athletic, active mom who's jogging every day. You're, this isn't what a person is probably going to guess would happen. That's right. That's right. And uh, you know, the, the disease of alcoholism and addiction doesn't have any boundaries. 
socially, economically, physically, has nothing to do with gender preference. Mm -hmm. However, one of the common factors of people that do become full-blown alcoholics, probably because we start abusing drugs and alcohol at an earlier age when your brain is not developed, and uh, would be some form of trauma, some form of trauma that sort of kicks in um, that use and abuse of alcohol and drugs at an earlier age. I, who knows if I had waited until I was 25 years old, my brain was fully developed, if I would have evolved into a full-blown alcoholic had I not abused drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. My suggestions to families and moms is to try to strongly recommend to your children that the drinking age is 21, dr- drugs are absolutely off the table, and to do the best you can to have those sort of rules in your own household you don't want them running somewhere else and doing it because it is a rite of passage. And, and seemingly when you're 16 years old and you get your driver's license, that seems to be when everybody starts to drink. But I think that if a, a family can then maintain those rules in their house, that's a start. So what do you say to those parents who say it's okay that their children drink as long as they know? And they're 16, 17, 18. Well, I know that my kid is drinking in the basement, but he's safe because I know. What do you say to them? I say they're not 21. Their brains are not developed. You have no idea what sort of propensity they have for becoming an addict. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be at your best discretion to advise them that that's not happening in your house. Number one, you don't want to be the house where everybody drinks. Of course, we were. My house was. Really? Yes. And I think there is some sort of rationale. Well, they're safe. They're in my house. I took their keys. The answer is no. Rules are okay. Accountability is okay as a parent and and to demand that of your children. So explain the program. Like if someone is listening to this and they know that they have an issue with alcoholism or they have a family member, what exactly are the steps a person needs to take? Well, first and foremost, my, my program of recovery is Alcoholics Anonymous. This is not everybody's choice. This is a program that works for me. There are numerous options out there in the world. There's smart recovery. There's something called the Phoenix, which is for younger teenagers, where they go to a gym that's all sober. They do all kinds of activities together where they have sober fun. So there is more than than AA. A lot of younger people think it's sort of a cult. Uh, It is not. It is a very successful program, but it may not be for everybody. Mm -hmm. So my advice to anybody is if you think that that you yourself may have a problem, it would be reach out to your therapist, somebody that you can talk to, a friend that may be able to recommend a therapist or somebody that's, that's in a program of recovery, to talk to, even your clergy, anybody you can to get help from because there are numerous avenues to get sober. If you're worried about your children, it's really critical that you talk to a pediatric therapist that has experience in recovery. And those are things that you can Google. I didn't even know that existed. It sure does. They also have uh, more extreme things that if your child resists any help at all, and they're under the age of 18, you can actually hire a team to come take your child out to different facilities in Idaho 
Utah, places like that where they live off the land and they stop using drugs altogether. It's a life-saving measure that provides an alternative for both boys and girls to understand how important it is to live sober and free of drugs. And it's a little bit dramatic, but sometimes we have to take those dramatic moves to save a life. Mm-hmm. So, and now with everyone everyone having life-changing events with COVID, do you think that there's a lot of people that are relapsing during this time? Oh, I know that relapse has gone up. I know that for people that I know personally, I also know that the suicide rate has gone up. I know that um, addiction has increased. And my biggest concern, of course, would be for those that are feeling desperate enough to want to take their own life. And that's not an uncommon thing for people in the program. When you don't have a program of recovery to work with and you're in this pandemic and you don't know where where to go or you don't know how to reach out because the only way you can reach out is through Zoom or through a phone call, mm-hmm. it, you have to pick up the phone. You have to pick up a phone and call somebody. It's It's so devastating to me to see that, that, we are cut off from our lifeline because of COVID. It's, it's very disturbing. But for those of you out there that, that think you may have a problem, you can call Alcoholics Anonymous, your local Alcoholics Anonymous in your, in your city or your state. If that's not something that you choose to do, you can Google recovery therapists. And they're all different, as I said, all different ways to get sober and stay sober. I just choose AA is what works for me. So can you be around alcohol at all right now or is it? Oh, sure. I have it in my house. You do and it's no problem. No, I, I, if I want to get drunk or drink, I'll do it. I'll find a way. I'll walk to, oh gosh, pretty damn easy to go into a bar right now or go. I didn't go into bars like that, but I mean, I can go to a liquor store and buy liquor anytime I want. Right. No, it's here for guests that come by. I think initially when I got, got sober, I wanted people to feel comfortable in my house. And if they wanted to have a drink, I wanted them to have a drink. I had made up my mind that I was not going to drink. That is poison to me. Mm-hmm. I cannot drink like other people. I never will be able to drink like, as we say, normal people. So I'm not going to try it. Mm-hmm. And I think that bit, bit of fear that lives in me is okay. And this is something that you work on daily. I work on it every day. I get up feeling grateful for my sobriety. I'm clear-headed. doesn't mean that life is perfect. I've lost two parents. I've lost a stepmother to suicide. Life goes on. I've had two heart attacks, which have nothing to do with my addiction. I had just been mountain climbing, and the next day I had a dissection in my heart and was flown, flown down to Denver in a helicopter. And, you know, Having two heart attacks was a hell of a lot easier than being an active alcoholic. But my point is, is that life, life happens. We have no control over what's going to happen on a daily basis with a lot of things that take place in, in our life. And we have to go into some form of acceptance. And nothing is worth drinking over or using over. Wow. Nothing. And your son, he actually went to rehab. He was gone away from you guys for quite a while. He was. He went to rehab for 30 days. 
in in Denver to a really great facility called Cedar, which I would recommend to anyone. And after the 30 days, we know that a young person's brain is not developed. They're, they function by the use of their midbrain, which is sort of similar to a caveman. You you eat, you sleep, you procreate, whatever. That's That's what you do when you're an addict. You eat, you sleep, you do drugs, you have sex, whatever your addiction is. And it takes a very long time for that neuroplasticity to take place where you're thinking more with your frontal cortex, your reasoning portion of your brain. And so I think for anybody that's a young person before the age of 25, you need a full year of rehab. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that Tommy realized that going into it. He took it, you know, well, I'm going for 30 days and then I'll come home. And we met him for a family program after 30 days and said, Tommy, we really feel strongly that you could use another three months in an aftercare facility. And that's what he, he chose to do. He was a little bit reluctant, but he did it. So he went to a place in Southern California, which was amazing. And then after that was, then that totaled four months, he came back to St. Louis for six months and, and lived in a a three-quarter house, which is like a halfway house, but you work every day, you do a drug test every day, you go to AA meetings, that's a requirement. It was, this particular house was run by this crusty old sober Marine <laughs> and, and, and you work. Wow. And no relapsing for him. He has been fine. He has been fine. There have been moments where he feels like his sobriety may have been put into jeopardy. And when that happened two years after sobriety, he went back to rehab to do some emotional work because God, I'll tell you, once you get sober, there you are. You still have yourself to deal with. You still have whatever trauma, demons, problems, and they need to be addressed. And it it just doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And as long as you stay sober, you can work on those things. You can work through anything. But uh, I was really, really proud of him that he took that step. And uh, yes, he has remained sober uninterrupted for eight years. He just had his eighth birthday recently. Sober does he work with addicts? Does he help recovering addicts? He did. He, he actually worked at a rehab center for a while. And now he owns and operates a small business. But he is a, he is a sponsor in the program. And he, he has a very, very strong friend group of sober men that he spends time with in Southern California. So he's very committed. We Tommy is what we call a big book thumper. It's kind of like a Bible beater, but it's the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he takes it very seriously. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what works for him. He doesn't preach. He's not preachy. But for himself, mm-hmm. um, he maintains that, that approach to remaining sober. And it's, it's worked very well for him. And he was 22 when he went to therapy? He was 21. Yeah, 21. Wow. And uh, hey, listen, all of us have gone through it. I don't know, but I can't speak for you or the rest of the world, but I know in my family, all of us have gone through therapy. And and the funny thing is going through all this therapy uh, prior to my getting sober was not getting anywhere because I was an active alcoholic and I couldn't figure out why these problems weren't getting resolved. 
And each time I'd work with a therapist, they would get closer and closer to figuring out what my real problem was. And the last one, before I got sober, kept wanting me to say the serenity prayer. And I said, God damn, this guy's getting too close to my addiction. I'm getting out of here, never seeing him again. And that's just one of the things that, that you do when your mind is, is sick like that um, and in your active addiction. So yeah, Tommy and I both have, have done considerable amount of therapy since becoming sober. And it's, it's, it's just amazing what you get to learn about yourself and how you can help yourself and, and grow up. We don't mature when we're active, actively using drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And you've got you went through a lot of adversity while you were sober. So it's not that it's been just such an easy ride. You said your stepmom had committed suicide. Your stepdad, he died and he you had to take care of him for a while. Yes. Your mom yes. passed away. You have a son that was going through all this. So you have definitely been put to the test. Like if you were going to cave, you would have caved by now. I, I believe that's true, but I, and I'm really through the grace of God, and I don't want that to turn people off. For me, that's my higher power or the grace of the universe or whatever you choose to believe in. I remain sober, and it's a miracle, but people drink over so much less. They drink to celebrate. They drink because they're sad. They drink because it's raining outside. I mean, people drink over a lot less than that. And so we have to not take our sobriety for granted. Each day we have to reaffirm our commitment to staying sober that day. It's really super important. Well, well, I I think you're great. I think the book is great. I think it's great what you're doing. I love that you're a boy mom and I'm so happy that, that we could chat today. Oh, I am too. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. I really appreciate it. And I certainly hope that it, that it helps somebody out there and it gives them some hope because it's possible for everybody to, to gain sobriety and, and live a life of freedom from that demon. How cool is Laura Cookbolt? She is a woman on a mission. She is a great mom and a great wife and a great person, uh, a good resource, I should say, for the AA community. She has came, overcame a lot of adversity in her life to get to where she is today. And I highly recommend checking out her book that she co-authored with her son, Tom, which is called Unraveled. It is a mother and son story of addiction and redemption. It is a great book. Another one of those books that I could not put down. Ryan Klein is getting a little sick and tired of me not being able to put books down. But once I start, it's really hard for me to stop. So check out her book online and I will post the resources to it. I hope everyone has a marvelous day. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.